And if you have your Bible, then please open it to Romans chapter 6. We'll be in the last few verses of that chapter today as we're going through the book of Romans a verse at a time, or a few verses at a time, I guess. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, then get the black Bible that's on the end of your pew. And uh, if you don't have one at all, then please just take that. It's our gift to you. Uh, We want you to be able to just open it up uh, distraction-free in your home and read the Word of God. Uh, We are in Romans chapter 6, verses 20 through 23. Let's read the Word of God together. It says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God... The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Mm. Amen. Amen. This passage contrasts the old life and the new life and tells us where the new one comes from. And we're called not to look at the old life and to have a nostalgia for it, but to live in the new life as Christians and to know where it came from. Uh, there have been some, some writers recently trying to uh, affect culture in various ways who have suggested that the way that people lived uh, before um, modern society, or even before society at all, was a superior way to the way that people live now. I don't know if any of you have come across these kinds of arguments. They've, they've come up a little bit more recently. It uh, seems to have a lot to do with the ideas of uh, equality and freedom, uh, the idea that back when people were just living in little bitty tribes together without more formed societies and governments, that maybe everybody was considered more equal, maybe everybody had more freedom uh, to live as they chose to. But the funny thing is that none of the writers who are writing about these things are making any of an effort to live like that. None of them are leaving society and quitting their jobs and moving out into the woods and learning how to turn a deer into a meal and a pair of pants with their bare hands. They're just not doing that because even though they write out these ideas, well, things were better back then before there was uh, all of these modern things. They, They know better in their real lives. They've got a nostalgia for running around in the woods, but they know that what they have now is better. Christians... Christians, don't get a nostalgia for the old way of life. Don't get a nostalgia for what it was before Christ and for being a slave to sin. What you have in Christ is better. It is better, and in fact, it's so much better that it's not just about this life. It's about eternal life. And that's what these first three verses of this passage really talk about. The old life of slavery to sin and the new life of freedom in Christ. We're going to kind of go a little bit faster than usual, I hope, through verses 20 through 22 because they're very, very similar to what uh, we've already covered in previous weeks leading up to this in chapter 6. And we're going to camp out a little bit more on verse 23. But... Look at verse 20, all right? If you're following along in your bulletin, this is point one, the old life of slavery to sin. You've got the old and the new. And just look at the words that are being used here with the old and the new. In verse 20, it says, when you were slaves of sin. That's language about the past, right? You were free in regard to righteousness. 
And then it says in verse 21, it asks a question about what was happening at that time. That's in the past. And then in verse 22, it contrasts it. It says, but now, now that you've been set free from sin, it talks about the old and it talks about the new. And so the Bible is calling us here to, first of all, reflect on what that old life of slavery to sin was. Believer, before you came to Christ, you were a slave to sin. Unbeliever, you are currently a slave to sin. You may think that you're, you're free. You may have the same objection that the people in, in, in John uh, chapter 8 had when Jesus told them that they needed to be set free and say, we have never been slaves to anything. We are already free. But he said that whoever sins is a slave to sin. Whoever gives himself to sin is a slave to sin. That's where we were as Christians. That's where you are if you don't yet trust in Christ. We talked about that a little bit in the previous verses. But that's where you were. We were born into sin. We were born with a natural tendency, natural love, natural desire for things that are sinful. And so it is never surprising when someone says, this is just who I am, and then follows that up with something that's against God's law. Of course, it's who we all were. It's how we were born in the sinful state of Adam, in the sins of the flesh, the desires of the flesh. We were slaves to sin who thought that we were free. And he explains that feeling, that thinking of being free when he says you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Now, I almost want to put air quotes over this. I think this is kind of the way that, that Paul is saying this here. You were free in regards to righteousness. What does that mean? Well, it's that before you came to faith in Christ, you felt like that you were free because you felt like that you were not under obligation to obey the law of God. You felt like when God said his righteous standards that you could just take it or leave it and express your own feeling of personal autonomy. I will just do what is right for me, what is right in my own eyes. What a feeling of freedom. But he's saying that idea of freedom is counterfeit. It's slavery to sin. That idea of freedom, we, we have to be aware that that idea of freedom is actually probably the most popular idea of freedom in our society as it is right now, our American society. Over, over the, the history of our country, there have been at least five different conceptions of what liberty ought to be. A lot of people don't realize this. They accidentally talk past each other about the words freedom and liberty. Um, but uh, there's a great piece of writing by a guy named Carl Eric Scott who pointed out that over, over the years in our society that there's been, first of all, what was called communitarian liberty, the idea that, that freedom was the, a community's ability to order itself as it wanted to. And then the founding fathers kind of brought with that uh, this idea of natural rights liberty. So a sort of a philosophical thing that you see right there in the beginning of, of the uh, Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. These are the freedoms that we are naturally granted by God. But then over time, there came to be this idea of economic liberty. Maybe freedom means we are free to make money however we see fit. And then from that came what's called progressive liberty, 
that, well, now maybe that there's a whole bunch of industry, maybe the kind of freedom that we really need is freedom from oppression from business owners and, and liberation for workers. And now the, what's become the most popular conception of liberty, and this is not just in politics. If it were just in politics, I wouldn't be talking about it. This is our conception in the culture in which we live, and it might be your conception of what freedom and liberty is, is the freedom of personal autonomy. The liberty of I should be able to set for myself personally whatever I feel like that I want to do. Well, that's become the most popular way of thinking of freedom in probably the last 50, 60 years. It doesn't matter which political party you're part of. It's just kind of cultural that that's how people think of freedom. But it's not something that just got invented 50 or 60 years ago. It's right here in the text of Scripture. It says before you came to Christ, this was in your heart, this was your feeling of freedom, was a feeling of freedom of personal autonomy. Like, I am not under obligation to obey. I am not under obligation to do what is right and just in God's eyes. I will do what is right and just in my own eyes. Guys, that is not freedom. It's not freedom. And you know how we know that it's not freedom? Well, It says in verse 21, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? He says, here's what that led to. Here's what that feeling of personal autonomy, I'm free from righteousness, I can set my own way. Here's what you get from that. Fruit that turns into shame. Fruit that rots. And you know this. You already know this. You, you can look back in your life, whether you're a believer or not, you know that the things that you have worked for, where you think to yourself, this is my goal, this is what I want to achieve, this is, I, I will bend the rules for this good end that I think is good for myself, you know that those things don't pan out. You know that when you indulge in sin and you have that momentary pleasure that you hold up as this beautiful fruit, you know that it quickly rots away. And and, and if your life is all about the pleasures of the flesh, well, it rots pretty fast every time. And you have to keep on pursuing those pleasures more and more because they just keep on rotting over and over. And yet you just have to keep on going back to them over and over and over. And that's why Proverbs 26.11 says, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Just thinking over and over, well, you know what? It turned to shame last time, but maybe if I go back to it, it'll be pleasure this time. That, that is what it is. When you're a slave to sin and free in regard to righteousness, you have these temporary things that fade away. They fade away. If you're all about physical pleasures, then what I just said is going to fit perfectly with that. If you're all about having power, well, guess what? Eventually, there's going to be a time that comes when somebody else comes and replaces you. If you're all about getting money, your Lamborghini is one day going to break down. All of these things, guys, they turn to shame. And no matter how much you die with, no matter how many toys and how many pleasures you have had, one day, all of it is going to be rotten. Everybody says you can't take it with you, but who knows what you can take with you? Jesus said, he said, do not labor for what is on earth where moth and rust destroy 
and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Before you come to know Christ, the only place you have to lay up treasures is on earth, and they turn to shame. It is fruit that rots. It's sin that is a deadly poison, but there is an antidote, and there's only one antidote, and his name is Jesus Christ. And once we've received that antidote from the deadly poison of sin, who is Christ, don't go back to the poison. Don't be a dog that returns to its vomit, thinking maybe now that I'm in Christ, I can have this pleasure too. It's still going to turn to shame. Don't return to those things. Do not again submit to a yoke of slavery. I want to say too, there is a... You will encounter Christians. You will encounter, if you haven't already, maybe you have a lot of times, I have a lot of times, you will encounter false teaching. You will encounter false teaching that masquerades as Christianity, uses the name of Jesus, opens the Bible, maybe occasionally, maybe a lot. This false teaching that will tell you things like, now that you're in Christ and now that you've been forgiven, you now have freedom to pursue the desires of your flesh. Because Jesus forgives sinners, don't worry about living in your sin. I mean, the most blatant places where you see this is where you see a quote-unquote church that would hang a rainbow flag on the front. And by that rainbow flag, they're not meaning what, the, what God meant by the rainbow which is his gracious promise never to again destroy the earth uh, for, for its incredible unrighteousness by a flood of water. That was a gracious thing from God. But no, what they mean by that is you can claim the name of Jesus and continue to live in your sin. And it's not just about churches like that, which I shouldn't even call churches because they are not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are preaching the gospel of Satan. And I'm, I mean that very directly. Because the gospel of Satan, the false gospel that Satan preached in the garden was, you will not surely die, as though that were good news. But it was wrong. It was false. Jesus, on the other hand, came and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what Jesus said. So guys, it's not just in those kinds of places, though. Because these kinds of teachings, these kinds of false teachings were rising up within even the New Testament churches that the apostles themselves founded. They were rising up there, and we're warned in the New Testament not to be deceived by these things. I want to read you from Ephesians, or excuse me, from uh, 2 Peter uh, 2, verse 19. He's talking about these false teachers, and he says, They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Guys, the false teachers will tell you, do you feel like something is overcoming to you? Go ahead and give into it because God is gracious. But the Bible says, do not be overcome. Do not submit yourself to the slavery of sin. It is a deadly, dangerous thing that in Ephesians 5 it says this, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. So, 
We need to consider, as Christians, that old way of slavery to sin is the old way. That's the thing that Jesus has set us free from. That is the thing we do not have to return to because now we're led by the Spirit and not led by the flesh. And even if you today are saying to yourself, but I feel overcome by sin, you can say, believer in Jesus, I don't have to be. I've been set free by the blood of Christ, and now I can walk in newness of life. I can leave behind slavery to sin. I can walk, as it says now, in the new life that's set free from sin as a servant of God. Verse 22 is where it says that. The new life that's set free from sin. It says, but now. So there was the then. There was the old thing. And now there's the now. What God has done for us in Christ. Now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. Where it says, now that you've been set free from sin, this is talking about believers in Jesus Christ. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you are still back in verse 20. And there's a call here. Come to verse 22. Be set free. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus. Become enslaved to God instead of enslaved to sin. I almost want to put air quotes around that again, too, and I did in the bulletin there. Just as we put air quotes around free from righteousness, now we are slaves to God. Now we are, he already talked about that back in verse 18, that we have been enslaved to righteousness, and now he says we have been enslaved to God, but this is not being enslaved in the sense of agonizing under an oppressor. This is now in the sense of being God's joyful servant. In Galatians, he talks about this in a whole different way, a whole different analogy of saying, you are no longer slaves. Now you are adopted sons. And both of those things are true at the same time. That as we have come out of serving sin into serving God, we have come as his adopted children who from our hearts, as he's going to say in Romans chapter 8, we, by the Spirit, we cry out to God, Abba, Father, from the heart. And we want to serve him. The reason we serve God as Christians is not because we think God is going to get us and throw us into hell if we don't. We know he's not. We know Romans 8.1. We know there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The reason we serve God is because he has already given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we want to turn and to do what's fitting with that. To love him. To serve him, to no longer be in love with sin and serving it, but to now love God and serve him. Because he's already set our reward. It is set. We're not having to work for it. We're not having to earn it. We're not at risk of losing it. And as those who have eternal life in Christ Jesus by faith, we want to turn and serve the God that we love who saved us. That's what this looks like. That's what he's talking about when he says you've become slaves of God. And the fruit of that, well, does that turn into shame? The fruit of sin, the fruit of the old life, it turned into rottenness and shame. Well, what does the fruit of the new life turn into? Well, it turns into holiness. It leads to sanctification. That's what sanctification means is growth in holiness, becoming more like Jesus in who we are. Dying more and more to sin and living more and more to righteousness in Jesus. 
It's fruit that turns to holiness, and it's our sanctification, and it is good. In Romans 8, 28, a couple chapters away, it's going to tell us that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, what? To be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, I'm going to preach on that again when we get there, but I'm going to preach on it now, too. Because what did it say is our good? It said our good that God causes all things to work for is to be conformed to the image of his Son. Guys, the, the weird thing is people will quote Romans 8.28 to unbelievers. God causes all things to work together for good. Do you know what the good that Romans 8.28 says will happen for believers is? To be conformed to the image of Jesus. Unbelievers don't even want that. They don't want that. They, they don't see that as good. They see that as bad. They don't want to die more and more to their sin. They don't want to live more and more to righteousness. They don't want their personal identity to be crucified with Christ. They don't want their, their lives now to be hidden with God in Christ. They don't want to be conformed to Jesus, and, and they would say, if, if they knew what Romans 8 was actually talking about, they'd say, I don't want that. Please don't tell me that. But believers... This is good. This is what God is working for in all things. For our good is what it says in Romans 8, 29, to conform us to the image of his son, and what it says in Romans 6, 22, that the fruit that we get would lead to sanctification, to make us holy like Jesus. And its end, it says, is eternal life. Now, when it says its end is eternal life, it doesn't mean that by earning, it doesn't mean we're earning anything by the fruit of our lives. It doesn't mean that by getting holy that we're earning eternal life. No, it's saying this is the track that you're on. Jesus said there are two paths and they have two different ends. There is the broad and easy path that has its end in destruction. And there is the straight and the narrow path that few find and it has its end in eternal life. What this verse is saying is that if you are on the path of eternal life, if God has given you eternal life, then what this path is going to look like, not necessarily every moment of every day because you're going you're to stumble and sin, right? You're, you're still in your mortal body, but what this path is going to look like is a path of growing in holiness. It's going to look like a path of no longer loving sin, but of loving God, of no longer wanting to be free from righteousness, but now to want to pursue God in righteousness and to grow in sanctification. That's why it says its end is eternal life. He's saying there's two paths. The one that goes to eternal life, here's what it looks like. It looks like loving God. But where does the difference in these two things come from? This is where I really want to camp out. I'm looking at the clock because I want to preach for a couple hours on this next verse, if that's okay. <laughs> Verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's the thing that makes the difference between the old life and the new life. This verse, by the way, verse 23, it's, it's capping off this paragraph that we've just read. 
But it's not just capping off that paragraph. It's also capping off the whole section about being slaves to righteousness versus slaves to sin. And it's also capping off the whole chapter 6. And I think it's also capping off all the way back to chapter 5, verse 12, where he said, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, and because all sinned, And then he talks about being rescued out of being in death in Adam and now being in life in Jesus Christ. How we were once united to Adam and now we're united to Christ. This whole thing, all of this comes together in this one simple statement that I have quoted to you enough that I hope you have it memorized if you've been around here very long. And if you don't have this verse memorized, believer, please memorize this verse. Memorize it for the good of your own soul and memorize it for the good of the people that you will share the gospel with. This is one of the most helpful verses in all of Scripture for sharing the gospel with people. Telling people, here is what we need to be saved from, here is how God saves us and what he saves us to. You need to have John 3.16 memorized. You need to have Romans 6.23 memorized. For the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's the difference right there. There's the difference of what it is to be in Adam and dead and what it is to be in Christ and alive, what it is to be in our sins and condemned, what it is to be saved and cleansed and have eternal life. It says the wages of sin is death. I want to I think about these terms a little bit. The wages of sin. What is sin? What is sin? Well, I'll quote the Baptist Catechism like a good Reformed Baptist, all right? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. That means God has a law. God has told us in the Bible what his good rules are. Here's what you should do. Here's what you should not do. And anytime we do what God said not to do, that is sin against the holy lawmaker God. And anytime we do what God said not to do, that is sin against the holy lawmaker God. And if you think that by do, I just mean the things that you do in your outward actions, it's not just that. It certainly is that. But it's also what we would do with our words. You can break all ten of the commandments in lots of different ways with your words. It's also not just what we do in our actions and our words, which are the things that are observable to other human beings around us. It's the completely invisible things of the heart that only God sees. You can sin in your actions. You can sin with your words. You can sin in your heart where only God knows. You can fool everybody else in the world. You can fool your own mother. But you can't fool God. He knows your thoughts. He knows your feelings. He knows your desires. And any failure to follow God's law in thought, word, or deed is sin against God. Jesus summed up the whole law of God with two commandments. He said the whole thing, there's lots and lots of commandments, but here's the summary of them all. First most important commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, your mind, your strength. And he said, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Occasionally people hear that and they think, well, that gets me off the hook from having to obey all the other rules as long as I think I'm a loving person. You're not, not thinking through what Jesus said very well. He's saying this sums up 
every commandment. And in any way in which we have failed to love our neighbor, in all of the thousands of ways that God has said to love your neighbor, in thought and word and deed, you are in sin against the holy God, not just against your neighbor. And in any way in which you have failed to love God, and I'm talking about the real not God, not your made-up conception of God, or not some other religion's conception of deity. I'm talking about the actual God. Any way that you have failed to love him, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength and thought, word, and deed, that is an even more severe sin against God than failure to love your neighbor. And you know what the wages of that is? Death. What does it mean by a wage? Wages are not grace. Wages are not a gift. Most people in this world believe in some sort of God and believe that the way that they will be right with that God is by earning their right standing before him. Almost all religions in the world codify that sort of thinking. They say, what you will do is you will do these things, and by doing these things, you will please the God or the gods, and if you please the God or the gods enough, then eventually you will be granted entrance into whatever form of paradise they might have. In Roman Catholicism, which is... Many, many of you were brought up in that system. It is a system of wages. It is a false gospel. It's a system that says, yes, you're granted grace. Grace to wash away your original sin. And then there is a system of merit. I'm not making this up, by the way. You can go to the Vatican website you can look up what they have listed as their official doctrine in their catechism published most recently in 1995. Go on there, do a search for the word merit, and you will see this. This is the gospel of the Roman Catholic Church, is to say that we are not saved by God's grace alone, that we must also merit, we must also earn a wage from God. Part of that wage, they say, is stored up by the saints who went before us. Of course, but they mean something totally different by the word saints. The people who had enough merit earned enough wages for their good that those are supposedly stored away in this thing that they call the treasury of merit. And there's some merit from Jesus in there. There's some merit from Mary in there. And then when you come to the Catholic Church and you go through their penance and their sacraments and they give you these things, they say that they are dispensing to you from the treasury of merit that the Roman Catholic Church is able to dispense by the authority of these ordained priests You see what they have there. They have a system that is no different from every other system of false religion in the world. They have a system of wage earning from God. And in the end, in that system, they say that if you haven't earned your wages enough and you die, then you will go and pay off the rest of your wages through the fires and the suffering of a place called purgatory, which does not exist in the Bible. It is a system of wages. There's another system of wages, which is just the way that you were born thinking. It has nothing to do with any systematized religion at all. It's the way that you were born knowing, I need to do what's good, 
I don't need to do what's bad. And if I can be good enough, then I will be accepted. If you don't know Christ, I know you think that way. You might have resigned yourself to being bad and thinking I'm hopeless. Or you might still be doing what almost every lost person that I talk to does, which is saying, I think I'm a pretty good person and that's how I'm going to get into heaven. I think that when I stand before God that he'll see my heart and he'll know from my heart that I have more good than bad. Is it not terrifying to you that God sees your heart? God knows the truth about us. He knows that we're lawbreakers. And if you have broken God's law in one way, you have broken the law. And you know what the wage is? The wage of sin is death. If you have a system where you're trying to earn a wage from God, you are on your way to hell. I want to be very clear about that. That's what this says. The wage system leads to death. If you think that by your works you can present something to God that will get you into heaven, the wage is death. The only way is by a free gift. Before we talk about that free gift, I want to be very clear what we're talking about by death here. When it says the wages of sin is death, this is not talking about the physical death that everyone dies. Because we know that it's not talking about that because he already dealt with that back in chapter 5. He said, here is the reason that physical death happens is because sin came into the world through Adam. We were born in Adam. God said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. We are part of this condemned human race. Physical death happens because of sin. One day God's going to get rid of it. But he's contrasting here, not physical death, because he's not saying this group of people physically dies and this group of people doesn't physically die. He's contrasting death and eternal life. When he says the wages of sin is death, he is talking about eternal death. He is talking about hell. The wages of sin, another way to put this, is the wages of sin is hell. Now, you can't escape an eternity in hell by objecting to the idea of hell. You can't escape an eternity in hell by thinking that it's cruel for Christianity to have a concept of hell. You, you can't escape it by dismissing preachers like me who talk about hell as hellfire and brimstone preachers. You know, if you dismiss preachers who talk about hell, you're going to have to dismiss Jesus. Because in the Bible, he is the preacher who speaks more about hellfire and brimstone than anybody else in the Bible. Out of his mouth, from his uh, from his incarnate body in his earthly ministry, Jesus spoke about it more than anybody else in the Bible. The way Jesus describes hell is that it's a place of destruction. And it's a place not of annihilation. Annihilation would be something's destroyed, and it's burned up, and it's gone. That's almost what we would wish that hell is because that would be better, wouldn't it? I say better in human thinking, right? That maybe if someone just suffered and then they were just gone and didn't suffer anymore, that's what we would hope for in a way. But that's not the way Jesus describes it. Jesus describes it as a place of eternal conscious torment. Jesus describes it as a place, he says, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. 
Jesus says that most human beings will go to hell. He described it as the broad and easy way that leads to destruction, and he said many find it. And he said that the way of eternal life is narrow and that few find it. And so if you're thinking to yourself, I'll be okay because I am going the way of most people, you are not okay. You might think that hell is a man-made concept. I don't know what man would make up that concept. You, you may not want it to be real because of people that you knew and you loved who might be there right now. You might think that it's too cruel. You might think that the existence of hell is not consistent with the existence of a good and all-powerful God. But I need to tell you today that the existence of a good and all-powerful God is the reason for the existence of hell. If you think that those things don't go together, then you don't understand the goodness of God. You don't understand the power of God. The fact that God is good is not good news for sinners. Paul Washer has described that as the most terrifying truth in Scripture, that God is good. Because we are not. We are sinners. And if we sinners present ourselves to an eternally powerful, eternally, uh, infinitely good God, what does that mean for us? Does it mean acceptance? No, it means destruction. Eternal destruction. So if you think that, that hell doesn't go together with a good and powerful God, then you have vastly underestimated how good and how powerful God is. It says here, the wages of sin is death. And that sin is against an all-good, all-holy, all-powerful God, and anything less than hell would not be fitting for that. There is no way to express what kinds of horrors are necessary to pay the full and just wage for offending the holy God. What do we do? I'm going to say this. Sinner, save yourself. Throw yourself on the mercies of God. I don't really mean save yourself. I mean trust in Christ to save you. Come to Jesus. I've heard it said before that fear of hell is not the best reason to come to Christ but it's not a bad reason. Jesus used it a lot. <laughs> he said, here are the eternal sufferings of hell. Don't go there. Don't be afraid to think about it, and don't be afraid to turn from it and see not just the horrors of what you would want to escape, but the beauty of Christ. And that's where the verse turns next. It says, not just the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does that mean? Oh. You know where it said the wages of sin? Does it say the free gift of works? No. What is it that gives us this gift of eternal life? It's not something that we can do. It is a being, a personal being that we call God. God is the one who gives eternal life. It's not something that we can earn. It's not something that you can deserve. If you were going to get what you've earned, if you were going to get what you deserve, you would be in hell already. I love it when, when I ask a Christian, how are you doing? And they say, better than I deserve. It's always true. 
It's always true, but guys, it is not a wage. This is the big contrast of this verse. There is a wage on the one side, and there is the free gift on the other side. There is the covenant of works that we were all born into. Please God or else, and we haven't pleased God. But then there is the covenant of grace, being brought into a new relationship with God where we're no longer in a system of earning and wages, but we are now in a system of being justified, standing right with God, a system we call grace. Free gift and grace are almost exactly the same word. It is God's grace. It is God's free gift. It comes from God. What we've earned in sin, God can do away with in Jesus Christ. Forgive us of all our sin. He can give us this free gift. Guys, there is, this, is, this is a new system. It, it comes from God. What is the free gift? It is eternal life. Eternal life. I talked about eternal death. I talked about hell, but now let's talk about eternal life. It's set here in front of us. The Bible does, in certain places, talk about eternal life as starting from the moment when you first believe. Right when you come to Jesus, the reason you've come to Jesus is because the Holy Spirit has made you born again. That's language of a new life, right? He says that you are a new creation. We know God, and Jesus said that that is eternal life, to know God and him whom he has sent, to know him. But we have something even more to look forward to, something beyond even just the goodness of this life that we would live by faith in the Son of God in this world. We are waiting to be in the presence of Christ for all eternity. When we talk about eternal life, yeah, it starts here, but this is pretty brief. This is very brief. You, you, you go down to, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. You go down to the beach and lick your finger while it's still clean, Put it in the sand and, and look and see if you can count how many grains of sand are on your finger. I'm going to guess that it's more than 100, and that would be a really, really full life to live more than 100 years here, wouldn't it? And then look around at all the grains of sand that are just under your feet, and then a little bit beyond that, and then down to the people who are sunbathing around you. Don't look at their bodies. Just look around. But look all the way down the beach. Think of how many grains of sand are there. That's not even the beginning of eternity. All right? And this is what God offers us. We have earned for ourselves eternal destruction by our wage, but what he offers is the free gift of eternal life. Being with Christ for all eternity. You know what that place is going to be? Uh, the, the reason heaven is good is because of Jesus, by the way. Y yes, you'll see your believing relatives there, and you'll be glad to see them. But the reason you'll be glad to see them is because you're together in the presence of Christ. And you'll say hello, and you'll turn, and you'll, you'll say, look at the face of our Lord Jesus. This is the main attraction. We're going to be there. This is, this is a place of pure love with no mixture of hatred. It's going to be a place of pure joy with no mixture of sadness. It's going to be a place of pure righteousness with no mixture of sin. A place of pure life with no mixture of decay or disease or dying. All of this is going to be just because we are in the presence of the good and life-giving God and we will behold his glory and we'll be transformed. Those who don't come to faith in Jesus as their Savior before their death 
die in their sin. Those who by God's grace come to faith in Jesus die not in their sin but in Christ's righteousness. Here's the difference. Here's what's coming. He's talking about death and eternal life. Let me just lay out for you what is coming. The souls of the wicked go immediately to hell and where they suffer in agony and in continual rebellion and hatred against the God who sent them there. The souls of believers at the moment of their death go immediately to heaven, immediately to be in the presence of Jesus, to rejoice in the glory and the love of God, the God who brought them there. When Jesus returns, Jesus is going to raise both the righteous and the wicked from the dead. That sounds like he's going to reverse hell for the wicked, but here's the way that he describes that he's going to do it. He's going to put souls and bodies back together, bring them up out of the grave. The way he describes it in Matthew is that he's going to gather all the nations before him and that he's going to separate the sheep from the goats, just like a shepherd, the righteous from the wicked. The righteous will be sent to eternal life, and the wicked will be sent to eternal punishment in a place that's called in the book of Revelation, the lake of fire. The righteous are going to live eternally, blessed both in soul and body in the presence of Jesus in the new Jerusalem. And the wicked will live eternally in destruction where the fire is not quenched in the lake of fire. Believers are going to be openly declared to be righteous, not because of our works, but because of the imputed, given gift of righteousness from Jesus that we receive by faith alone, and we're going to be made perfectly blessed. Every trouble that you've ever had in your soul will be fixed. Every trouble you've ever had in your body will be fixed. Every struggle with sin will be over and defeated. Every ounce of sadness will be gone and every ounce of joy that you never thought possible will be there because you will be with Christ. How does this come about? Well, it says, the last words of this verse, in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ Jesus our Lord. You don't go to heaven in yourself. You don't go to heaven by being good. You don't go to heaven because you. If I ask you today, why do you think you're headed to heaven and your answer starts with because I... You're mixed up, if not lost. It's because Jesus. It's because Jesus has come in the flesh. The Son of God, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, has come and lived, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law. He lived for us, he died for us, the just for the, just, the, just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. You need to come to Christ. When it says in Christ, that's a contrast with what started back in chapter 5 with being in Adam. You cannot in your personal identity and the way that you were born and how you feel and all your desires and all the things that you bring, you can't go to heaven. But in Christ, it is the free gift of eternal life. Receive it. Receive it right now if you haven't. And rejoice in it if you have. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for the free gift of eternal life. It's not in us, it's in Christ. God, I pray for us who are in Christ. I pray that you would give us the grace by the power of the Spirit no longer to walk as we did before in that slavery to sin, considering ourselves free to righteousness. But God, I pray that instead that you would grow in us the fruit that leads to sanctification as we serve God. But God, I thank you that you've settled everything already in Jesus. I thank you that we have the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God, I pray today that those that you haven't given that gift to yet, that you'd give it to them today. I pray that you would open their hearts by your grace to receive it, no longer to be in a system of wages and being good enough and earning or any of those things, those good people (laughs) thoughts. God, I pray that instead that you would just give them the grace to lay down every pretense that they've ever had of being anything but a sinner and to embrace the righteous Jesus and receive eternal life right now. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.